If we look at the world from some perspective, either historically from the perspective of time or worldwide through many human cultures from the perspective of space, what we see is a great whirlwind of human activity and beings driven by many unconscious forces in the psyche resulting in some happiness and also a lot of unhappiness for ourselves and for those that we interact with, driven by stirrings within the human heart and mind, resulting in societal upheavals, cataclysms of revolution, and the brutalities of war. If you survey the whole human history, you don't see a great deal of inner peace on a global scale, on a historical scale. Now, why is that? The Buddha said it's because of the force of ignorance in every human mind, that this force of ignorance leads us not to see clearly, and this not seeing clearly leads us into the tangle of self with all the complications of greed, aversion, and confusion that follow from it. Steve described a few nights ago how our practice of mindfulness leads us into the investigation of our present moment experience in a way that can reveal to us the true nature of existence and lead to these liberating insights in the area known as vipassana, or seeing clearly the way things really are. As we start to see the actual individual characteristics of a phenomenon like the breath, we start to see the actual individual characteristics of a body sensation or a sound or an emotion, we start to understand the composition of the whole universe. Seeing one breath can be seeing the nature of the whole world. This clear seeing, this detailed precise seeing, is the ground from which insight arises. The Buddha said that there are three key areas that we need to investigate and understand as we start to see the nature of things. These are sometimes described as the three characteristics that apply to all existing things. And it's these three characteristics of existence that I want to talk about tonight. The first is the quality of impermanence. In Pali, the word is anicca. The second is the quality of unsatisfactoriness. In Pali, the word is dukkha. And the third is the quality of not-self or selflessness. In Pali, the word is anatta. What's curious is that in each of our minds, there is a bias against seeing the truth of these things. The Buddha called that bias vipalasa, or illusion. Because we are inherently biased against seeing these things, we have to work hard to be able to see them clearly and for that understanding to settle in us. Our built-in bias leads us to believe and leads us to perceive existence as having the three contrary characteristics, that is, of permanence, the capability for lasting happiness, and the presence of a self through the whole world of phenomena. So let's start by talking a little bit about impermanence. I don't think it is news to anybody here that everything changes. I think you've probably heard this a lot of times before. And because everything changes, we all know that we shouldn't cling. I'm not telling you anything new. But for some reason, we all still do cling, don't we? It's very curious how we know we shouldn't cling, and yet we still do. I was comforted by a comment of Ajahn Chah's that Ajahn Amaro Relayed. Ajahn Chah was a Thai meditation master who was Jack Kornfield's first teacher. Jack calls him one of the wisest, probably the wisest man he'd met in his life. And Ajahn Chah said that, in his view, 
80% of spiritual life was knowing that we're clinging and not being able to stop. <laughs> you ever run into that on your meditation cushion? <laughs> the body's a knot of tension. The mind is racing. There's a slight hint. There might be some clinging somewhere in this experience. But we just don't know how to release it. So most of us are probably at that level where we know there is clinging happening. And sometimes, maybe 80% of the time, it's hard to release. I'm glad Ajahn Chah said that. It made me feel a lot better. But what this means is, when we know we're clinging but we don't know how to release, is that somehow the understanding of impermanence has only penetrated part way into our being. We know it with our mind. We may know it a little deeper in our gut, but it's like it hasn't gotten into the marrow of our bones yet. It hasn't penetrated all the way. Because if it did, we would know, as the Buddha said, nothing is worth clinging to. Nothing is worth holding on to in the light of impermanence. But unfortunately, we have this innate resistance to seeing the truth of impermanence. Why? Because it threatens the ego. The ego is the strategy of self that we've constructed to manage the world and our relationship with the world. It is undermined by the truth of impermanence, so we all have blinkers on that prevent us from seeing it, that lead us to want to see permanence. So I offer these remarks on impermanence tonight as just hoping to make a little dent in that barrier we all have against seeing the truth of things. I think that with all three of these characteristics, we need to hear them again and again and again. And each time we hear, they go a little bit deeper. I think Steve tomorrow night is going to talk more on the characteristic of dukkha, so I won't go so deeply into that this evening. I want to go particularly into impermanence and also touch on anatta, not self, tonight. We can think of the truth of impermanence on at least three levels, probably, probably more. We can think of it on a cosmic scale, the scale of one human life, and the scale of our momentary experience. So I want to talk a little about all three of these. Living as a human being with just the perspective of 50 or 60 or 70 years or 20 years, we come to think some things are everlasting. We might think that the earth is everlasting, the sun and the sky and the rains and the oceans and the rivers. When you read uh, Native American poetry and literature, that's the implication. There's one line I particularly like uh, from Native American tradition. The old men say, only the earth endures. This is true. This is true. But from a scientific perspective, we now know that even the earth isn't permanent. It wasn't always here. I think it's about four, four and a half billion years old by latest estimates. We also know that someday it won't be here anymore. In another few billion years, the sun will burn out. And in its burning out, its flame will engulf the earth and burn it to a crisp. So even the earth and the sun are temporary. Even space may be temporary. With the collapse of all matter into the Big Bang, even space might be a temporary creation. So even on a cosmic scale, we can see everything that seems solid is subject to passing. In the span of one human life, we can also see the effects of impermanence. This is an area that I would call the realm of reflective insight. The Buddha encouraged us to reflect again and again and again on the truth of impermanence. And seeing it in the course of one life is something that's easy to do through reflection. He said doing this undermines the game of ego, the game of the self, the strategy of greed, aversion, and delusion. We tend not to do a lot of reflection in these kinds of retreats. 
we encourage you to carry on this reflection at home. And when I say reflection, what I mean is the um, purposeful application of thinking to uh, Dharma topics for greater understanding. So it's using thought, but in a way that furthers our, our insight, our Dharma insight. We suggest during retreats like this that you devote your time just to the moment-to-moment development of mindfulness. But when you go home, we hope you'll make this reflective practice a part of your daily life. So we look at our human life in this Western culture, the, the Western paradise as we know it, and we see that the message of our culture is about acquiring, and always about more. You see this through the TV ads, which are kind of the underbelly of the culture. More money, bigger house, newer car. Now it's better body, thanks to the miracle of modern medicine. The body that you'd like to order can be yours for a price. And all of us here have seen the limitations of this belief, of this, I would almost say, religious view enough to have left it somewhat behind and looked for something else. So we come to a spiritual path into spiritual life and we start to understand that real happiness doesn't come from material things, can't come from material things because of this factor of impermanence. So we look in a new direction. We look in the direction of meditation. We start to understand that real happiness comes from a purified heart. When our human heart is free of the forces of greed, aversion, and confusion, then there is true peace. Then there is true happiness. We get an inkling and greater and greater confidence. This is the real road to happiness and peace. But as we work to develop the path and develop those wholesome qualities, we find that we still bring in some of the same mindset of acquisition, and holding as in the material culture. So we come into a retreat, we start developing mindfulness, some concentration builds, and we have a peaceful sitting. And we think, wow, this is great. This is what I came on retreat for. Now I've got the groove. And then we go out for the next walking period. I can't wait to get back in the meditation room. And we walk and we come back in. What happened to the peace? Maybe gone. And often the loss of that peace and concentration is much more discouraging than a drop in our savings account or a dent in our new car because we've developed the same kind of desire and attachment around the fruits of spiritual practice. So in many ways, the events of spiritual life can come to occupy the same place in our mind as the objects of the material world, just a more refined uh, kind of object. There's a very interesting article in the New York Times that came out about a year ago, and it's, it's called The Futile Pursuit of Happiness. Some researchers at Harvard and other universities started to explore the connection between what humans wanted that would bring them happiness and what actually happened to them when they got those things. They also studied what happened when people got the things they really didn't want and how that unfolded over time, how they both unfolded over time. And what they found was really interesting. They found that by and large, as people, we are very poor predictors of what will bring us happiness or of what will bring us unhappiness and to what degree. So they were focusing mostly on outer things. That was the interest level of the subjects that they talked to. And they found that when people got the new BMW that they craved, they were happier, but for a short time. And then it faded. And in fact, they were less happy than they expected to be And that lower level of happiness wore off more quickly than they expected that it would. 
So the good thing that came into their life, this desired thing, didn't bring as much happiness as expected. And the happiness didn't last as long. But on the other side of things, they found that events that people didn't want to have happen also had less of a a negative effect than people had expected. That they didn't get as low as they thought they would and that they rebounded more quickly than they thought they would. So to sum it up, the way the reporter described it is that on average, bad events proved less intense and more transient than test participants predicted. Good events also proved less intense and briefer as well. This has great implications for us as meditators. Things generally don't make us as happy as we expect they will. Even the new car or the new relationship, the new line of work, or newfound wealth. But also, the things we're afraid of in life generally don't impact us for as long or as deeply as we fear they might. So even the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the death of a family member, people are generally surprised at their ability to rebound from those kinds of events. What this really says is we don't know how, as people, to account for impermanence properly. We don't know how to plan for change, either positively or negatively. And what's interesting in this article is that the researcher, the key researcher that mentioned in the article, was kind of ambivalent about these findings. Because what does this point to? We make too much of a fuss about things. Why do we make so much fuss? about the ups and downs of our life. In a lot of cases, they just don't matter that much. So this researcher, who's the Harvard professor, said, Hope and fear are enduring features of the human experience, and it is unlikely that people are going to abandon them anytime soon just because some psychologist tells them they should. (laughs) And what did the Buddha have to say about hope and fear? I think he said abandoning them was a pretty good idea. That's really what living in the moment is all about. That's what these conclusions are pointing to. And then the researcher spoke personally, and he said, I don't think I want to give up all these motivations. I don't think I want to learn too much from my research in this sense. (laughs) Those egos are tenacious beings, aren't they? Let's hold on to our hopes and fears. It's the juice of life. So, what this points to is a willingness to trust more and more in the sense of equanimity as we ride through the ups and downs of retreat life, as we ride through the ups and downs of our daily life. Trust that we will be able to weather the storms that come and that we will be able to stay balanced through the good times also. Not to get too head over heels, in either direction. One of the things that we often see on retreat is that when the concentration goes and we fall into one of the storms that come frequently on retreat, we tend to get really upset by the fact the storm is there. I mean, the storm itself may be unpleasant, but it kind of causes what you might call a crisis in confidence in us. We feel we've gone off track, that we're not a good meditator any longer, that we've, maybe we suspect we've given up our effort, we've forgotten how to do the practice, we're not a good enough meditator, we're not sincere enough, or we've lost the thread and it's never going to come back. Have you had any of these thoughts in the middle of storms? (laughs) I have them all the time. And in a way, what we do is we take a current moment's experience and project it indefinitely into the future. It's always going to be like this. This happened to me in in Burma. I was uh, recently in Burma sitting for a six-week retreat. I ordained when I was there, which is why my hair is so short. This is about two months' growth, so (laughs) it's coming back, but slowly. And I got there probably at the worst time of year that I could have picked. 
I arrived in Burma at the very height of the monsoon, and it was in one of the rainiest areas of Asia that I've ever been to. I've been through three or four monsoons in Asia, and Steve and I were talking about it, what it's monsoons like where we have been. Usually there will be sun in the morning, and then in the afternoon the sky will just open up and bucket rain and dump like two inches of rain in an hour and then pass through and it'll be sunny again. That's sort of the monsoon I was used to, and I don't mind that. (laughs) But this monastery was on the edge of the Andaman Sea, which is just east of India. And the monsoons were blowing right off the sea and slamming into these low mountains where the monastery was located with no buffer. So when I got there, it was really the start of the height of the monsoon season. It rained for the first three weeks I was there, probably 15 hours a day. I saw the sun twice in those three weeks. As I was adjusting to being in the robes, being in a new uh, society, new culture, new food, new teacher, new practice, etc., etc. So with all of that, I have to say, I confess, I found the rain a little gloomy. <laughs> so I was sitting in my kuti and I was feeling very gloomy and I thought, it's going to be like this for another six weeks. How am I going to stand it? I don't think I can take it for another six weeks. And I got more depressed thinking about how gloomy it was going to be than I was just being gloomy in the first place. (laughs) So I just weighted myself down with that sense, it's going to be like this forever. You know, six weeks seems like forever when you're in retreat. It's going to be like this forever. And it was about three weeks before I could really believe that it was ever going to get sunny again. But I had brought along a photograph of the Dalai Lama that I keep on my altar, a photograph that Sally gave me a while ago. And I turned to the Dalai Lama, who I love a lot. I have a lot of devotional energy to. And I said, "Um, Your Holiness, can you give me some good advice? And so I heard this voice spoken in his kind of Tibetan Indian accent. And it said, hmm... Um, stay optimistic, (laughs) cheerful, and confident. (laughs) He said, a positive attitude is the best support. (laughs) And it came through just like that. (laughs) Those were the words that I heard. Stay optimistic, confident, and cheerful. So I really tried to take that advice to heart. Even though it was raining outside, I tried to find that place that was optimistic and confident and cheerful. And sometimes I could do it, and sometimes I couldn't. Sometimes I could follow the advice, sometimes I couldn't. But it became clear to me at that point that what I really needed to weather this storm was that confidence. Confidence that there was going to be another side to it, that I was going to come through the other side, and that it was going to be okay again on the other side, as it had been okay before the storm. So I want to suggest that when those storms come, when the delightful meditation sitting goes away and the thoughts and the emotions get kind of chaotic or depressing or gloomy, that you remember that aspect of confidence or as Kamala talked about it the other night, it's really the quality of faith that we need. If we can have that faith in ourselves that we can come through this storm then we really can stay cheerful in the middle of the storm. We can really not be bothered by the thoughts, by the emotions, by the worries that come because we know they too will pass. They too will pass. This is really the heart of equanimity. The basis of our equanimity really is this quality of faith. And it's one of the key qualities that develops with spiritual practice. But we have to go through those ups and downs a number of times, a lot of times, before we can really trust, yeah, this is just a temporary phase, and I'll come out the other side. One of the other ways that we tend to ignore impermanence or deny impermanence is the concept of getting it all together. One day... I'm going to get it all together. Whether it's in my life 
or in my meditation practice. It's not all together now, but I just have to work a little harder and get all the pieces in place at one time, and then my relationship will be in a good space. I'll be enjoying my work. My body will be fine. That old knee problem will have healed. I'll have enough money. My parents are still doing okay. My kids are not dealing drugs anymore. (laughs) At one moment, everything is going to be okay in my life. But have you ever known many people for whom that's true? It just seems like one thing or another is always kind of slipping out of balance. The relationship comes into a really good place and the job gets all screwed up. Or the money comes together, but then the parent's health starts to deteriorate. Joseph Goldstein, one of uh, all of our teachers, has this nice phrase. He says this is the attitude to bring to to meditation as well as to life. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And it really seems true. In meditation also, do you ever find yourself wondering when your retreat experience is going to all come together? Surely, I mean, in my early days, I thought, surely, if I sit a six-week retreat or a three-month retreat, it will all come together. (laughs) At some point, all these body disturbances and wandering mind and annoying, afflictive emotions that come, I'll have figured them all out and kind of put them to the side and I'll really be able to just cruise on this, you know, float, really, on this plateau of mindfulness and concentration and equanimity and peace, just day after day. (laughs) That's what my retreat should be like. I haven't gotten it all together yet. So I think we're lucky if we get a day like that, where all those factors come together and last for 24 hours. That is wonderful if you have a whole day like that. But generally what's happening is that because the factors are not under our control, they have their own lives. We make our moderate effort Mindfulness starts to build, and out of that concentration builds, and when concentration is strong and energy is good, then there's a feeling of peace and alertness. But any of those factors can start to decay. Beyond our control, they can start to decay. Doing the best we can, making our good, steady effort all the way through, the meditation may still fall apart. Other energies may come in, bodily pain, distracting thoughts, restlessness, anything. Can we be patient with that? Can we realize that we don't have to get it all together on this long, long plateau for insight to develop? Sometimes the best insights come in that falling apart phase. Where else are we going to learn equanimity? When everything's going right in our life, we tend to get attached to the pleasant circumstances and then we actually don't learn very much. It's really when things get shaken up a little bit and we get tested that we tend to learn more. So insight tends to develop to some degree out of difficulty, out of the difficulty of change. And in this way, in spiritual life, you may hear it said that a good situation is not a good situation for spiritual insight. And a difficult situation is a good situation for spiritual insight, for developing equanimity, strength, confidence, faith, understanding. Another major way, of course, that we deny impermanence is in our relationship to death. Again, the ego has a strong investment in not seeing the truth of our death. Freud said that our entire human neurosis was rooted in our denial of death. So there's a strong force there, not letting us see it. Someone um, posed a question to a wise person in the Vedas, ancient Indian literature that goes back about 3,000 years in time that predates the Buddha asked the wise person, what is the greatest miracle on this earth? 
And the wise person responded, the greatest miracle is that every human sees, is surrounded by those dying around him or herself, but doesn't believe that he or she will die. (laughs) This is pretty amazing, isn't it? We haven't quite integrated, most of us haven't quite integrated the reality of our own death. This understanding was actually one of the experiences that prompted the Buddha to begin his quest. It said that he took a ride into the neighboring village and saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. And these jarred him so much that he resolved to find a way beyond aging, illness, and death. And then the fourth person that he saw was a renunciate pursuing a life of uh, spiritual inquiry. And he decided to follow that example. But I just want to read one thing that the Buddha said about this understanding that dawned on him. An uninstructed person seeing a corpse feels repelled and disgusted. But I reflected that I too will die and come to be a corpse someday. So it is not befitting for me to be repelled and disgusted by a corpse. Seeing this, the pride that I took in life, in being alive, entirely vanished. He went on to say that there is also a pride in being young and there's a pride in being healthy. He said he gave up all of these at the start of his health, at the start of his quest, realizing that they were all impermanent and bound to pass. We usually feel death as a threat of some kind, probably the ultimate kind of threat. And it certainly is a threat to the ego, the sense of permanent self that we've invested in. But it's interesting, the Buddha said that it's not necessary that human beings fear death. He said some beings do fear death, other beings don't fear death. He said that we will fear death if, number one, we are greatly attached to sense pleasures and we want to have more pleasant sense experience. Number two, if we're greatly attached to this body, if we love in it and delight in it and pamper it and are very attached to it. Third, someone who has done harm to others and has neglected to do virtuous actions fears death because that person doesn't know what the effect of those unvirtuous actions will be after dying. And the fourth person who fears death is one who does not have faith in the Dhamma, in the truth of things. So conversely, the Buddha said that it's, it's not necessary to fear death as long as there is not a great attachment to pleasant sense experiences, a great attachment or delight in this body, one has not neglected virtuous actions and one has not done many harmful actions. In the classical terms, this would be one who has observed sila or morality, virtuous actions to others, and one who has practiced dana or generosity, the uh, doing of charitable actions to others. And finally, the fourth condition is one who has faith in the Dhamma can die without fear of dying. The Buddha felt that this reflection on death was a very, very helpful reflection for all his followers, not just for monks and nuns. He had one set of reflections that he encouraged the monks and nuns to do, but here's a set that he encouraged for everybody, lay people as well as monks and nuns. said, five things to keep in our minds every day. I'll read them. I am of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to become sick. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. At death, I will be separated from all that is dear and beloved to me. And the final one, I am the owner of my actions or you could say, my karma. All that I do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. 
These are the five reflections we're encouraged to carry on. And among these, I feel the reflection on death has an especial power that is very useful for, for all of us. So this is all in the area of uh, impermanence as, as it manifests in the span of one human life. Then the third area of impermanence that we need to look into is this momentary experience of impermanence. Here we're getting into the realm of meditative insight. This is where simple reflection is not enough. This is where the understanding can only grow out of this sustained mindfulness that leads to quietude, concentration, and a clear and penetrating seeing into the nature of our experience. In this realm, the moment-to-moment impermanence of our experience, we start to see that impermanence is taking place at a much faster pace than most people realize. Of course, if you've read quantum mechanics, you know that electrons are pulsing on and off all the time in the very fabric of the atom. Things are not stable. An electron is essentially unlocatable. It's actually described as a probability graph of a smear of charge. But we usually don't experience it that way. But in fact, through meditation, we can experience the very rapid change that's taking place moment to moment. Sally and I were at a uh, presentation by the Dalai Lama a few years ago. It was down in Mountain View at Shoreline Amphitheater. And it was a really wonderful event. It was in the summertime. And in the amphitheater, they've got a, a lot of seats, a, you know, a couple thousand seats. And then everybody else can stretch out on the lawn that goes up in kind of a bowl shape behind and look down on the stage where the Dalai Lama was speaking. There was a big video monitor of him. And at this setting, he was surrounded on uh, both sides by monks and nuns from all the different Buddhist traditions. So on one side of the stage, there were all the Tibetan monks in their bright red. And on the other side, and I think the Tibetan nuns were on that side too. And on the other side, the Theravadan monks and nuns in their brown and yellow robes. Uh, A lot of Zen monks and nuns in gray and black. Korean uh, monks and nuns in their brown. So the whole stage was this uh, colorful array of monastics. And behind the Dalai Lama, there was a huge painting where normally the speaker rack would have been for the Grateful Dead. But this was a huge painting of the Potala, the palace that used to be the Dalai Lama's palace in Lhasa. And it was painted as though it were twilight, sunset, and the last rays of the falling sun were shining on it. So it was almost like seeing the Dalai Lama where he should really be, in front of the Potala, giving Buddhist teachings. It was a very beautiful uh, setting, and with the grassy slope behind, it was kind of like being at a Buddhist woodstock. You know, without all, without all the drugs, everything was, was pretty clean. So it was really, it was a delightful experience. And he was teaching on emptiness, which was terrific, as good as a drug. And in this teaching on emptiness, he said that in understanding impermanence, it's important to understand it's not that solid objects persist for a while and then all of a sudden go away, but rather... These objects that we think are solid are in truth dissolving moment by moment by moment, dissolving and reappearing, dissolving and reappearing, dissolving and reappearing, pulsing on and off, existence pulsing on and off. This is very much the view of quantum mechanics in modern physics. It's also the view of the direct insight of the yogi who has certain concentration and certain skills of seeing. So it's very important in our style of practice to begin to look so closely at your experience that you start to be able to realize this in your direct experience. So what is dissolving? What can be seen and known to be dissolving? To answer this question, we have to look at the nature of our experience. What makes up our experience as human beings? I'd like to read this short teaching from the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. In this translation, it's called the Sutta on Totality. 
Monks, the Buddha said, I will teach you the totality of life. Listen, attend carefully to it, and I will speak. I will teach you the totality of life. That's a gutsy thing to say, isn't it? Who would have the nerve to teach the totality of life? Not Einstein, not Marx, not Freud. The Buddha said, I will teach you the totality of life. What, monks, is totality? It is just the eye with the objects of sight, the ear with the objects of hearing, the nose with the objects of smell, the body with the objects of touch, and the mind with the objects of cognition. This, monks, is called totality. In the mind and its objects, primarily, we're talking about uh, states of mind, the emotions, moods, and refined meditative states that Sally talked about both in her talk last night and also this morning in the instruction, as well as thoughts. This is primarily what's being pointed to in the objects of mind. So from our experience, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, emotions, and thoughts. Is there anything else? Anything else significant in your experience? Is the Buddha leaving anything out in this description of totality? Isn't it amazing how simple it is? It's such a simple description of life, and yet it's so comprehensive. Nothing is left out. We have these six classes of experience, the five physical senses and then mind objects, primarily thoughts and states of mind. That's all there is. Now, of those six areas, in your experience, which are solid? Which are not dissolving? What about a thought? Does a thought last very long? Not generally. It sort of comes and then it's gone, doesn't it? What about a sound? It's got a little bit of a decay, but if you listen closely, there's a little bit of modulation. It's kind of changing, being reborn, changing, dying away. What about body sensations? These objects, these are objects of touch, the sensations within our body. Are these solid? Look closely in your experience, even as you sit right now. Feel the pressure of your seat on the cushion. Is it one unchanging feeling? Or is it kind of pulsing and throbbing and getting stronger and weaker moment by moment? If you look closely at any body sensation, you'll see that minute change taking place. There's nothing solid within the experience of the body. Emotions. Has any emotion lasted all day yet? Probably not. Emotions generally don't last so long. And even then, they're kind of being reinforced, aren't they? By your thoughts. Coming and going, waning, getting rebuilt. What about sights? Opening your eyes and looking around the room at these white walls. That looks pretty solid, doesn't it? Sight is one of the hardest senses to see impermanence in. The light changes. The light changes, that's right. It looks very different now than it did two hours ago, than it did in the morning. And even if you want to get more granular than that, remember how sight is generated. Particles of light called photons many, many per second, fall on a wall, are reflected and bounce into our eye where they strike the retina. It's really a stream of photons that are falling on the retina, triggering signals of electricity through the optic nerve into the brain where somehow, miraculously, consciousness of seeing is created. Stop that stream of photons for one split second, the sight goes away. 
So the site only exists because it's being recreated moment by moment by these tiny particles of photons striking the retina, sending fleeting electrical impulses up the nerve to the brain. So this site, which seems so solid, is actually pulsing on and off many, many times a second, triggered by the impact of these many, many, many photons. Even this kind of seeing is accessible to yogis. I can't say millions of times a second that a photon strikes, but the lack of solidity of sight is accessible to yogic insight. So we can verify from our direct experience the statement of the Dalai Lamas that everything in our experience is dissolving moment after moment, not lasting more than a part of a second, in fact. And then we have to ask, what is there to cling to? When we see impermanence at this level, we know clinging is not a good idea. But when we see it at this level, we really know there's not anything there to cling to. The Buddha said nothing should be clung to because it it leads to suffering. When we see on this level, we start to see there is nothing to cling to because it's all in the process of fading away, of dissolving. The Buddha compared it to someone being swept away on uh, the current of a river, someone who had fallen into a fast-running river and was being swept downstream. And as the person went downstream, they wanted to gain a steady hold by grabbing hold of things on the bank. So they'd reach out, but every time they reached, they only could grab a hold of a strand of grass, and it came away in their hand. And then they'd go a little further, and they'd reach out on the other side and grab a clump of grass, but it just pulled out. This is the state that we're all in with clinging. We hold on to things, but even as we hold, they're coming unsolid, they're coming unstuck. The Buddha had an attendant for the last 25 years of his life, his cousin named Ananda, who was a very uh, gentle and lovely person, looked after all the Buddha's needs over that time really dutifully. And at one point he asked the Buddha, what do you mean by the world? The word for world in Pali is loka. And the Buddha made a pun in reply. He said, it disintegrates. And the word for disintegrate in Pali is paloka. It palokas, therefore it is called the world or loka. Why do you call it the world? What do you mean by the world? It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. So this world of our six senses is constantly disintegrating, constantly dissolving. When the yogi touches this kind of insight and this kind of realization in practice, it's usually a little unsettling. I don't know if you can get that flavor or sense of it, but it's, it's as though the ground goes out from underneath one's feet. Because, in fact, one realizes that what we take to be the ground, solid and supportive, is only the sensation of hardness. It's just another touch coming through our bodily sense, which is changing all the time. So there really isn't, there is no ground. So this is the area of insight that the understanding of impermanence opens up for us through practice that is not available to ordinary daily reflection. This kind of insight where we get the truth of impermanence in in our marrow, really, is accessible only through meditative uh, deepening. So, in the second of the characteristics, the Buddha talked about the area of dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, often translated as suffering. We begin to see that the world can't give us a lasting satisfaction through the six senses because of this dissolving nature. There is nothing there to hang on to. 
So the impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness are very closely related. When we try to hang on to something that's in the process of dissolving, we won't be satisfied. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. The teaching of the cause of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are two sides of one coin. The third of the characteristics that I mentioned earlier was this teaching about not-self. This is actually one of the most difficult teachings of the Buddha to understand. So we have about five minutes left to cover it. (laughs) That's probably about right. I want to just say before I make a few remarks about it that you shouldn't aim to understand this topic in one evening anyway, even if it was talked about for an hour. But rather I found that this message, this understanding, has come very, very slowly and very gradually over years of practice. I feel I'm still uncovering new angles to this insight, and that as I do, it continues to expand the area of freedom in my life. For me, this has been one of the central areas for greater freedom within all my Dharma practice, understanding this message of anatta, or not-self. To really understand the message of not-self, I think we have to start by understanding what the Buddha meant by self. Or, another way to say it is, to understand what each of us means when we say I or me. Because there are some assumptions hidden in those two words, I or me, that we normally don't pull out and look at or question but we really have to pull them out and become conscious of them or we'll never understand what it means to deny the self through this concept of not-self. So, what is implicit within our idea of a self or an I or a me? Okay? One central thing is that there's a constant ongoing entity there, 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 and here. That in some ways, I have been the same entity from the time I was born until today. And that all the experiences that happened through all my years happened to me, the same person. So that's the first characteristic of a self that we take for granted the same person or entity has been through all these different experiences of life. The second aspect that's a part of that is that this I has been somehow independent of all the experiences that have happened. That I have been a kind of hard, kind of like a little hardball inside, wrapped up in this fabric of bodily experience, sight experience, sound experience, emotional experience, thought experience, that it's all impinging upon. That all the different senses are impinging upon some unchanging center within me that really is me. It's all happening to me. And in some ways, I'm a kind of observer of it all that doesn't change through all the different experiences. So you put that all together, constant, ongoing, independent observer. That combination cannot be found. Cannot be found. Not within this sphere of sense experiences. Not within the human realm of experience. There is no entity that matches this description. So one of the important directions in our meditation practice 
and I hope you will take it seriously, is to look hard for that kind of entity. Because only after looking hard for it and not finding it will you be convinced that it's not there. Something that will satisfy these criteria, being the same since you were born, being independent of your experience that your experience is happening to, can't be found. But we each need to look hard enough until we know that. William James said something funny. When I look for the self, all I can find is a tickle in the back of my throat. (laughs) Maybe that's all any of us can find. So what the Buddha said is that these sense experiences are not that self. A sight is not that self. A sound is not. A touch is not. A smell is not. A taste is not. An emotion is not. And a thought is not. What's left? Not much. Not much. So he didn't actually say there is no self. What he said is that all these experiences that we can touch through meditation, those are not self. Those are not this thing called self. Those are not I or me. In fact, when we start to look, we see that this sense of I or me comes strongly sometimes especially when we get wound up about something, when we get invested in something, and at other times is quite weak. Take a look at your experience in one of those moments where there's a lot of calm and a lot of space. How strong is the I then? It's not very strong. So what we see is that this sense of I or me gets constructed, gets big, and gets small. And when you look again and look more closely, you'll see that when it's strong, it's because there's hanging on to something. There's clinging. So, in fact, the sense of I is directly proportional to the strength of clinging. It is nothing else. And as the clinging relaxes, you can start to feel the freedom when the sense of I is weak or even absent. And this becomes a fantastic doorway to peace and happiness. Once after this talk, in the questions the next morning, someone in the uh, hall raised their hand and asked me, all this stuff about impermanence that you talked about last night, is this just some bitter pill that I've got to swallow? (laughs) It's not very encouraging. It's not a bitter pill. It's just the way things are. It's hard to accept because we have a bias against seeing it. But it's not intrinsically a problem once we adapt our worldview to it. The reason it's stressed in Dharma practice is that the more we see it, the less we tend to hold on. All the pointings of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are so that we don't hold on so tight to our experience, not the highs and not the lows. As we develop greater greater capacity to let go, more and more peace comes. As Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, there's a little peace. If you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there's complete peace. This complete peace, then, is kind of the doorway to Nibbana, that state that is beyond change, beyond unsatisfactoriness, beyond the limitations of the sense experiences, that is the real goal of our Dharma practice and that provides the greatest liberation and freedom for our hearts. It is really in the interest of discovering Nibbana the direct realization of the unconditioned that the Buddha encouraged us to let go through the investigation of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So let's just sit for a minute, please.
Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, like a star at dawn, like a bubble in a stream, a flickering lamp, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a mirage, and a dream. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 26, 2004. It is an offering of the 